Mark chapter 8, verse 36 says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? This verse would suggest that the most important part of humanity is the soul, which by definition is the moral and emotional nature of a person. It is the essence of a person's nature. It's what makes me, me. Man can achieve great things. He can obtain massive amounts of wealth. He can create large structures. He can build complex organizations. But if he loses himself in the process, what did he profit from it? Is this going to be the story of America? Are we on the path of being the greatest nation in the world, but in danger of losing our soul? Hello, everyone. This is Mike Tyree from Waylife Ministries. Our mission here is in Waylife is to help people see morality from God's perspective. We live in a pluralistic society that embraces all kinds of beliefs, and it is our commitment to reclaim Christianity as the dominant moral influence in America. We believe that the Bible gives us the principles on how to live and who we should be. We feel it is our duty to share those principles and demonstrate that they have and can work to build a better society. Last episode, I started a series where I discussed this idea of the soul of America. I defined it. I explored the idea of what happens if America loses its soul. And now today, I want to continue by diving in and exploring the question, can our national soul be restored? And if so, how do we fix it? Well, let's get started. The moral essence of America's nature has been to glorify God in whatever we did as a nation. America was unique in history because of this idea of acknowledging God. Our culture reflected this idea, and it was woven into its DNA. They tried to live out 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, that reads, And whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You see evidence of this in the early 19th century when America grew at incredible speeds because of this belief. It was God, family, community, country. They believed that as I worked my farm, I did to the glory of God. I believed that as I honored Him, He would bless my family and my community. And as my neighbors did the same, we worked together to build a vibrant community. It was in this spirit that they built schools, hospitals, churches, and businesses. They created charities and they sent out missionaries. They created beautiful pieces of art, orchestrated music, and wrote wonderful pieces of literature. They innovated the design of new systems and invented new technologies. This was, this was a family. I love God. I love my family. I love my community. I love my country. Benjamin Rush, he was a founding father, the signer of the Declaration of Independence, the father of American medicine, founding member of the American Bible Society, and he helped start the American Sunday School movement. And he understood this relationship of your biological family to your family of your country. He said this, patriotism is as much a virtue as is justice and as necessary for the support of societies as natural affection is for the support of families. He's making a comparison here that as love is necessary to keep a family together, so it is also necessary for love to keep your country together. And he went on to say, quote, love of one's country is both a moral duty and a religious duty. 
It comprehends not only the love of our neighbors, but of millions of fellow creatures, not only of the present, but of the future generations to come. You see, he's saying here, if you love your country, then you will not only want what's best for your neighbors, but millions of other countrymen you don't even know. And this love reaches beyond the present and into future generations. America was a family and neighbors looked out for each other. You see, there was no government controlling the local schools, no government feeding the poor, no government controlling your income, no government controlling your health, no government controlling your education. You see, family took care of family. They never even thought about social services, stimulus checks, welfare checks, free health care, free college education. They worked hard and had pride in their work. They saved their money. And if a neighbor was going through a hard time, you, by virtue of your Christian faith, helped them. They taught their children these values, and in turn, they taught those values to their children. Work hard, show Christian love, and pursue happiness. But slowly, over time, Americans began walking away from those values and embracing new ones that were absent of a belief in God. And today, we no longer image those ideals of patriotism. Patriotism no longer means love of country and love of God. If you call yourself a patriot today, now you are labeled a fascist and a racist. If you fly the beautiful red, white, and blue, you are labeled an uneducated, redneck Christian kook. But you see, that's okay with me. I'd rather be in the camp with George Washington who said that if you deny the hand of providence in America, in the American cause, you are no patriot, but you are an infidel. You see, this relationship of us acknowledging and honoring God and He in return blessing the nation is becoming a memory of what the founders experienced. So the question is, how do we fix this mess our nation is in? Well, I want to give you three steps to change a nation. First of all, make your bed first. Number two, know your stuff. Number three, engage the throttle. I will explore each one of those in the next three episodes. Well, let's get started. Step number one, make your bed first. At the 2014 University of Texas graduation ceremony, former Navy SEAL Admiral William H. McRaven gave one of the most inspirational speeches of our time. The speech went viral and ended up in publication. Focusing on the school's motto that what starts here changes the world, Admiral McRaven gave five lessons on how to change the world. And I just want to share the first one with you. The first one was make your bed every morning. And this is what he said, quote, It was a simple task, mundane at best, but every morning we were required to make our bed to perfection. It seemed a little ridiculous at the time particularly in light of the fact that we were aspiring to be real warriors, tough, battle-hardened seals. But the wisdom of this simple act has been proven to me many times over. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task and another and another. By the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. 
Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you will never do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made, that you made. And a made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. If you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. You see, the point that he's trying to make here is that you must take care of what is close to home first. Your first task is to make sure your life is in order. If you focus on the world changing stuff, but your own life is out of order, you will never succeed. Matthew 16, 26 says, What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world but lose their own soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? You see, when counseling people over the years, one of the things that I would ask them is, what is the priority list of what is important in life? Almost all of them would say something like, God, family, church, work, me. They would always get a confusing look on their face when I would tell them that I did not agree, that I believe that the list should be God first, me second, and everything else after that. And the reason for this is how can I be of any service to my family, to my church, to work, if my head is not screwed on right? You see, the starting point of change always starts with self. If I want a godly nation, I must be godly. If I want to reflect biblical values, I must reflect biblical values. If I want laws that are fair and just, then I must be fair and just. How can I fix the soul of America if my soul is in need of fixing? Jesus, on several occasions, escaped to the mountains to be alone with God. He did this because he understood that he needed to take care of himself first, and then he could take care of others. And trust me on this, if Jesus needed to, we definitely need to do the same. When Moses led the people out of Egypt and into the wilderness, the first thing that God did after giving them food and water was to have them build the tabernacle, to build a place of worship. In the tabernacle, he taught them about worship before he taught them the Ten Commandments. Personal faith and worship were the first priority in establishing a form of government and building a great nation. The tabernacle taught them about sin and redemption. But it also taught them about his goodness, his mercy, his love, his compassion, as Exodus 34 tells us. He wanted them to understand that what he wanted more than anything was to have a relationship with his people. It was only then that God gave them the law, the moral code for Israel to develop as a nation. Centuries later, the pilgrims understood this concept also when they organized the Plymouth Colony. In Plymouth, Massachusetts, there is an 81-foot granite statue, the National Monument to the Forefathers. It is a matrix on how the pilgrims built a Puritan society and how it brought about the United States of America. It was several reliefs around the base of the monument that represents morality, justice, education, and a vigilant watchman that protects their Christian worldview. But standing high above these reliefs is faith. 
Faith is pointing to heaven in one hand and holding a Bible in the other. What the monument is trying to convey is that any Christian worldview starts with the individual's faith. Before the law, before educating your children, even before morality, personal faith is the foundation on which society is built. The Founding Fathers understood that the American experiment was dependent upon personal faith and virtue. John Adams, he explained it this way, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. James Madison, he wrote that our Constitution requires sufficient virtue among men for self-government. And later, in 1849, John Winthrop Speaker of the House of Representatives said that all societies of men must be controlled either by the Bible or by the bayonet. Psalms 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So when we put Him first in our lives and we focus on living right and obeying His word, our soul is revived. When a person or a nation focuses on conforming to God's word, when we acknowledge and honor Him in all that we do, our soul is revived. Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God, and these things will be added unto you. This is why it is so important to understand that if we are going to change the world, we must start with self. And this brings me to my last point. Be on a continual quest to better yourself. You see, we live in a culture that promotes the entitlement mentality, meaning the world owes me. Even if I haven't done anything, it owes me a job. I want top pay for entry-level experience. It owes me free stuff, free food, free phone, free education, free health care, free money. You see, people by nature want to be taken care of. In fact, they will give up their freedom if there is the promise of being taken care of. Just watch commercials that send out this message of owing it to yourself. You deserve a break today. Have it your way. You see, this idea of self has even infected the military with their new recruitment video. It's not about what you can do for your country. No, this video is about a lesbian soldier who joined to prove her inner strength and maybe shatter some stereotypes along the way. You see, it's about her and her agenda. You see, this is toxic to society. They have a non-biblical view that believes that people are basically good. That if we start with this, if we start with this premise, then that changes everything. If people believe that they are basically good, then there is no need for redemption. There is no need to spend so much time trying to better yourself if you're already good. Instead of working hard at being good citizens, people spend their energy finding ways to fulfill self-pleasures. It has led to a casual culture where everything seems to be acceptable. The idea that man is basically good has led to the idea of relativism, the belief where there is nothing that is right or wrong. What is proper depends upon you. Everyone lives according to their own ideas of what is right and what is proper. So, if a person wants to wear his pants down to where his butt crack shows, who are we to say that that is not good manners? 
Or what is the big deal for kids to walk across the neighbor's yard without permission? After all, they're not hurting anything. What's the big idea of looking at your phone when someone else is talking to you? Their reasoning is, I can multitask. And how about the guy who's playing his car radio so loud you can hear it a quarter of a mile away? You know, I, I know a lady who told a man that she loved him in passing. They were just friends. She didn't say it in a romantic way. She tells everyone all the time she loves them. It's her way of showing friendship. But the problem is the wife of the husband she said she loved didn't think she was just being friendly. I've got a good friend of mine who used to hug everyone, men, women, kids. It was just his way of showing friendship. The problem came when some of the women he hugged felt it was a little too friendly. In early America, people were very conscious on how they behaved in public. They thrived on the idea of working hard to better themselves. They believed man's nature was to do evil, not good, so they set up a government of checks and balances to guard against man's evil nature. Early Americans were well aware of this temptation to do evil, so they were on a continual quest to better themselves. Church attendance was high. Biblical literacy was the norm. They also did something that most people have never heard of today. They created a list of what is called maxims. Maxims were rules of civility or conduct. They were truths or principles to live by. They were personal character traits they would try to obtain or manners they would try to exhibit to show respect for others. Benjamin Franklin had his 13 virtues. George Washington listed 110 rules of civility. Even as late as the last part of the 19th century in the Victorian era, they had rules of etiquette. Ben Franklin, when he listed his 13 virtues, was a young man in his 20s. And among his virtues were temperance. Eat not the dullness. Drink not to elevation. Silence. Speak not but what may benefit others or yourselves. Avoid trifling conversation. Order. Let all your things have their places. Resolution. Resolve to perform what you ought. Perform without fail what you resolve. Frugality. Waste nothing. Industry. Lose no time. Be always employed in something useful. Sincerity. Use no hurtful deceit. Think innocently and justly. And if you speak, speak accordingly. Justice. Wrong none by doing injuries. Moderation. Avoid extremes. Cleanliness. Tranquility. Be not disturbed at trifles. Chastity. And lastly, humility. Imitate Jesus and Socrates. You see, Benjamin Franklin wrote that once he started in this quest of perfecting virtues, he realized that how much at fault he was. Boy, if we would do this today. George Washington, he is well known for his commitment to proper etiquette. Here are a few of his rules of civility. Every action done in company ought to be with some sign of respect to those that are present. Undertake not what you cannot perform, but be careful to keep your promise. When you speak of God or His attributes, let it be seriously 
and with reverence. Sleep not when others speak. Sit not when others stand. Speak not when you should hold your peace. Walk not on when others stop. The Victorian age brought a whole new level of proper manners with a seemingly endless list of etiquette rules. Though many of these rules of etiquette seem funny and outdated, they give us an insight to this idea of bettering oneself. These were more than just rules of good manners. They were an outward appearance of an inward worldview. And the foundation of that worldview was based heavily on Christian principles. The aim of the Victorians was not to be fancy, but to be good people. These rules of etiquette were a demonstration of respect for others. There were dinner etiquette, how the silver was to be placed, how the bread should be sliced, how to dress for different occasions. There was shopping etiquette. Never look over anything that you don't have intentions to buy. Speak to the clerk with, uh, with courtesy and kindness. Never let the door slam into the face of another person. There was hostesses and guest rules of etiquette. A guest should arrive no earlier than 10 minutes before the time of invitation. The guest is to make themselves as agreeable as possible. No little tempers, no sour looks, no adverse opinions, no unpleasant uh, criticisms should ever fall from the lips of a guest. There was traveling etiquette, theater etiquette, church, grooming, introductions to other people etiquette. On the street etiquette, you name it, if there was some type of etiquette, they were going to make it up. The point is that every early Americans understood their frailties and desired to become more like Jesus. Yes, Jesus saved me from my sins, but now I need to develop a mindset of continually improving myself for his glory. Having this strong desire to constantly keep growing. You have heard of people in their 80s learning a new language or getting a college diploma. God brought 80-year-old Moses out of retirement to start a new career. What was this new career? Challenge the ruler of a massive empire, lead a few million people into the wilderness, then organize them into a nation. You see, age has nothing to do with becoming more like Jesus. It has nothing to do uh, with not bettering yourself. To the day that we die, we want to continue to better ourselves for His glory. You see, what I'm trying to get at with all of this is if we're going to create a culture that glorifies God, we must reflect outwardly what Christ has done inwardly in us. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 13 that we are a reflection of His glory. And this is my motivation as a Christian. As I continue to develop, improve, and better myself, I am reflecting the glory of God. And as Paul would say it, I reflect it from glory to glory. As early Americans are an inspiration to better ourselves, let Paul's word in Philippians be our foundation. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. You see, this is how Christian culture begins. When our thoughts are consumed with being virtuous inwardly, and then we will begin to reflect them 
outwardly. This is the legacy of America. This is what we must preserve. Let me leave you with this question. When you look back on your life, when you are old, what do you see as the purpose to your life? Think about it. All your experiences, all the things you've done, all the successes and failures you have had, all the jobs you have worked, the spouse you married with all the children you raised, all the relationships you have developed over the years, and all of that at the end of your life, when you reflect back, what was your primary purpose? Well, I hope for me, I will be able to look back and say that in all that I did, in all the people that I've known, in all my successes and failures, in all my relationships, in all of my work, I did for the glory of God. For in Him I lived and moved and had my being. If you want to fix and restore the American soul, start with making your bed first. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. Next episode, I will continue on this idea of personal development when I discuss the second point on how to restore the soul of America. Know your stuff. Educating yourself in the Word of God and in culture. Again, thanks for listening. Now go make your bed. Refocus. Reclaim. Rebuild.